Hey everybody, the con artist here. This cast will be talking about our rolling review choice for winter 2023, which was Hikari no O, or The Fire Hunter, as they gave the name in English. So, uh, Scott, why don't you tell us what the plot was about? Yeah, sure. So, uh, it's it's a pretty interesting world building they've got. Um, basically, there's, there's a, a future world, like on Earth, in Japan, where... People, due to some the after effects of some war, are now they will combust in the presence of, of flame. So you can't use fire for basically anything. Uh, it's dangerous to groups of people because they'll blow up and the people next to them will, will burn. Uh, we're talking like explosive instant death. So it's changed how things work. People are basically like living in the woods. And only recently, uh, there's been these creatures called the fire fiends and their blood makes basically a, a substitute for fire that isn't dangerous to humans. So it still produces heat, it still produces light. And so you can use it for many, but not all of the same applications. But the beasts that have this blood are very, very dangerous. And so fire hunters, specially trained warriors that have dog companions uh, and sickles, which are these tools that can instantly kill any fiend they touch, uh, kind of go out there and get this material to sort of help human civilization. Uh, the store, the show primarily focuses on two sort of sets of characters, or two, I guess, locations. Uh, an outlying village where there is a girl who, like, due to her actions, sort of a fire hunter is killed, and she is tasked with bringing his effects back to the capital where they're trained. So his dog, his sickle, some other pieces. And... The vast woods between them and the capital are unbelievably dangerous. So these trucks that sort of make trips from the capital out and back are going to carry her there, and then she'll have a journey along the way. And then meanwhile, in the capital, there is the son of a prominent fire hunter who's gone missing. It is, of course, the same one that just died. And he's a smart kid, and he uh, he's adopted by a prominent businessman, like the richest in the city, uh, to work on technological development in the case that a war breaks out between the ruling class of the city who are like basically magic users that can control the elements and don't really respect human life that much and a renegade group of that of these ruling class called the spider clan that live out in the woods and have recently figured out how to use natural flame again without dying because the gods are still generally speaking, susceptible to natural flame, as are the humans. And that's all the pieces in motion, I guess, the pieces that there are. And then when they're in motion is how the show happens. The big overarching plot, besides an, an appending attack by these the uh, the renegades known as the Spider Clan, is that there is a man-made satellite coming back into orbit around Earth, and it's going to do something when it gets here. Uh, it's a little unclear what, but it sounds possibly apocalyptic. And I guess that's the setting as best I understand it. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Yeah, well, it's a very dense plot. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is also backstory and factionalism and the dynamics between these groups that we don't 
actually follow directly. It's all from like a third person perspective uh, of our two protagonists uh, who are kind of on the outside looking in and getting caught up amongst all of these more major events. Um, so yeah, it can feel a little overwhelming while at the same time, not a lot actually happens for some stretches <laughs> of the story, but, uh, True. we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I guess we'll talk about like the, the positives of the show because, you know, it did sort of grab us at the very beginning. That's why we decided to do a rolling review about it. Um, and I'll say, you know, right up front, like there's been a lot of people who complained about the animation and the visual style of the show. I honestly like the style that they chose, the aesthetic that they chose of everything being, I'm not going to say watercolors, but like these muted tones and this very rough uh, sort of interpretive animation. I feel like it gives the show an extremely distinct style and really helps you know that this is a, that this world is you know, is definitely alien and weird to us. And you just don't see a lot of shows that take that sort of creative risk. Uh, how well it pays off is a subject that we'll begin to get into later. But I feel like the the style that they chose, the visual, the visual imprint of the show is very distinctive. I think if that style had been consistent throughout, I have zero problem with it. It actually... You know, it gave me, the first episode anyway, gave me like a gentle teaspoon of Moribito vibes, oh, yeah. which I think is like one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And so I was hooked really early like you were, but I will say I I do want to call a spade a spade. The animation is very janky. <laughs> it suffers from a lack of, of budget. They do a lot with a little. I will say that. I'm impressed with how they manage to maneuver things given the fact that they don't have a lot of keyframes in between, but it's, it's definitely a struggle. Oh yeah. And the worst part is the, um, I would say is the transitions between scenes and at some times there are entire things where the action and reaction is so unclear that you have to like pause and go back to figure out what exactly just happened here. There's a point where someone uses like a wind spell to knock a bunch of people away, but you never know, you never see them being like blown away or moved or anything. You just see the spell get cast. And then that some folks ended up in a river somewhere. And I had to like reverse her a bit. I was like, wait, what exactly did this? What exactly was the, was the chain of events here? I'm actually thinking of there's a sequence where the train gets attacked. Oh yeah. And, and Toko and company need to run. Like, guys, the animation is so hideous as to be <laughs> genuinely frightening. Like, it almost comes off horror-esque. Like, people's bodies distort and they twist in unnatural ways as they're, like, falling out of the train. Or they're kind of moving robotically because, like I said, there aren't enough keyframes to get you from A to B. So they move in this unnatural puppet-like way. And... I think that's where the show really suffers and kind of pulls you out of being sucked into its dense, otherwise well-thought-out world. Uh, I certainly don't doubt that the original source material really thought out its world, but you know there are definitely early episodes where, holy smokes, that animation is... It's rough. <laughs> it's yeah, it's I mean, real bad. Sometimes, I, I honestly thought it got worse over time. Like, by the near the end, there's that scene where the kid and like that fire hunter guy are going out on some journey together 
And boy, they're climbing over trees and stuff, and their limbs are just not working right. And like everything bends the wrong way, and you're like, who is animating? Like I like I feel like this is what it would look like if I tried to animate a person walking. Like it is heinously ugly at times. Like anytime something's moving is a bad time, which is why they spent a lot of effort, particularly in the later episodes, to not show any action at all. Like there'll be a sword fight or something. And they'll just cut away to some blood hitting the ground. Like, they won't show the sword or the strike or the hit. Uh, they'll only show the blood because they just, they, they, they know their limitations by that point, I guess. Yeah. Some of my other personal favorite scenes, just to end this, like, the animation is hideous. I think that, in many instances, I do think they do a lot with very little. And the show does, you know, get you where you need to go, but... I do have to say that my personal favorite is anytime Kanata moves. Like that dog. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, guys, it's teleporting. That poor dog. Dogs, can, put, dogs like, in this show can fly straight up. Yes, like, they just fly. Like, talking about that ending scene, well, like Kanata like jumps across the staircase. Like, it's going to be hard for me to describe without a visual for our audience, but like, guys, it's so unnatural as to be riotously funny. <laughs> and then I think in one of Brendan's episodes, like the dog just like, I forget how they do it. Like the background is just a bunch of swooshes because it's supposed to be like Kanata's moving so fast. But then like Kanata pivots, like the dog spins in midair. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a preview for episode two. Moving. Like they keep like, showing that scene. I'm like, oh my gosh, just no more of this. Don't, don't move the dogs. That's, <laughs> that's part of, that should be a rule. Just don't. Move the dogs. But the dogs are Mamoru Oshii's favorite part. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. The dogs have a lot of personality. I like there's so many different kinds of dogs. I like the super cute tiny dog, Tamuri. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's his name. Like, the dogs are great. Just, boy, it's really too bad they are so much part of the action. Yeah, and I guess I'll just end with, like, it's really quick to Brendan just, like, dropping that hot topic there. Like, this is Mamoru Oshii, like, Mr. Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, I mean, for episodes like, was one on four, weirdly enough, no one seemed to want to sign on to the credits after that. <laughs> it, it pulled a uh, Promise Neverland season two. Um, but yeah, I, I felt bad, you know, not that it's hit. I don't blame him in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying like that a person with that much, you know, credit to their name. It's kind of tragic. It's a big name. And like, it makes sense. Like the setting to, to re- return to our prose is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I yes. gave a lot of description back there and like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here, like people not being able to use fire and all this other stuff and the divine clans who are the guys ruling the, the city. There's a ton going on that is well, probably well thought out in the novel. Uh, I mean, they don't really execute on it that well. We'll get there, but like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah. And adaptation a- is a sensitive art. Yes. True. Also, I I mean to speak more to that, I the aesthetic is really inspired a lot by like Meiji or Restoration era, this sort of period through the second half of the 1800s when Japan was letting in, you know, foreign influences and was really in this like race of technological uh progression to try and catch up to what it saw as its rivals on the international stage. And so while this revolution is sort of being caused by a rediscovery of old uh, knowledge and texts and people finally having enough security to advance beyond just bare subsistence, 
it's a really cool visual design of seeing the old and the new, these sort of machines and devices that have been sort of reconstituted in people's heads from like old descriptions and pictures uh, and the more traditional, you know, very Japanese style of clothing and structures and everything else and seeing that kind of mishmash of these two time periods kind of not conflicting but overlapping and evolving is something that I really appreciate and that kind of ties back into um, elements that you see of uh, Morabito which is where I also went when you know we were getting through the first episodes that this is a very well-considered world like magic and whatnot is a powerful force but it's not necessarily the dominant one at least it wasn't at the very beginning it's just it's this looming shadow in the back and that was also a world that was sort of going through a transition, both culturally and technologically, as things were evolving. And, you know, we were seeing the impact of what leaving their spiritual world behind was having on, you know, the more modern world. And in this, it's more of we've managed to establish a certain degree of modernity and advancement but the world itself is still extremely dangerous and there's forces within our own society that are threatening to destroy everything that we've made. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of really cool stuff in the soup. Uh, it's just that the actual balance of the flavors is completely out of whack as we'll get to. Yeah. Just to chain off Dan really quick. I love some of the, the very tiny elements, like the fact that because you know, flame is is not there, natural man-made flame. Uh, you know, we've reverted back into this world that's like deeply, deeply, effectively superstitious and religious, right? Like we worship the gods to the point that when our lead character Toko, who has to leave her town, is on the train, she's on the train with a bunch of women who have been sacrificed by their villages to go get married because there's just a superstition in this world that if your crops aren't growing properly, like you need, you have not appeased the gods. And so we sort of revert to that whole, like put a pyramid in, you know, out to appease the river god type of thing. So they send them off to get married. You've got little things like, I really loved the whole scene in the opener episode with the paper. The fact that paper, this thing called muku paper has very, very high value in this world. And I think it's it's just a beautiful like cultural element because the word for paper and the word for God is the same. It's kami. And, you know, the fact that like paper making involves having to use this flame and it's a very long process because then we don't have modern tools anymore in this world. And, you know, this paper is like as sacred as God, right? Like they have to negotiate to send Toko to the capital with paper. And there's like this brief discussion about like, do you understand what you're asking for by asking me for like a sheaf of paper? Right. It's a very, very important thing. So like little things like that, I think were just really, really nice you know, subtle storytelling about how this world works. And this is not the first time we've watched, or at least I've watched a show where like people combust, <laughs> like Fire Force comes to mind, along with Promare, both of oh, which yeah. I thought were terrible. Uh, so it was nice to see a show that was using this concept and then wrapping the whole world around it, you know, with purpose. Yeah. In terms of other things that I liked, uh, like the, I guess the storytelling pace I felt it was really deliberate. Like, 
it isn't moving fast. It isn't moving slow. It's moving at its own pace. It kind of matches the honestly rather grim setting pretty well. Uh, like it isn't, it isn't a happy world and like, I don't know, the pace at which things are, are going seems to match it well. So there was that going for it. I don't know what, what you guys thought. Yeah, I agree with that. My other item that I really liked was I love this kind of storytelling where a bunch of, I'm using the word ragtag, but basically a bunch of different people with different skill sets like common skill sets have to come together to puzzle out how to solve the conflict. You know, you have Koshi whose whose skill set is intelligence, right? He's a scientist basically, and he's trying to develop lightning from, you know, special type of of fiend fire. You've got Toko who does have the spiritual angle. Like I mean, she's a girl on a journey. And she fulfills that end of things. There is an element of like her taking over the the scythe, and sort of at the end, there's hints that like she is becoming the next fire hunter. You've got, you know, these like tree people who have ancient knowledge and like they don't really deal with humans, but sometimes they'll give it out if like they sense you're someone who's a good person. You've got like the rich and wealthy who are f- trying to fight against literal gods so you know they're they're using their influence and scientific knowledge like it's it's just all these people with very normal skill sets coming together to try to win the day which i love this kind of storytelling agreed and the fact that our two main characters are about the farthest thing from like warriors or fighters that you can get one is a literal child whose pretty much only superpower is owning a dog and another one is a scholar who has, you know, whose knowledge is extremely powerful. And we see that come to fruition later on. But as a dude, like the best he can do is like throw a vial of this bottled lightning at someone to distract them long enough for them to get the heck out of there. So their solutions to problems have to be, you know, through talking or through being, you know, clever and occasionally relying on the skills of people much more dangerous than themselves. So they're very much plays to the whole, you know, a world caught up in change and characters, you know, struggling to find a way to face that change in a way that doesn't, you know, get them or people they care about hurt or killed. Um, Yeah, I don't know if anyone else has any other like net positives they want to talk about, because I feel like we're going to spend the back half of this probably tearing down almost everything we've just said. Yeah, I liked the op song. I was going to say op song. Very good. I like the op. Very nice. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's let's get into it then. So I'll start off my list of things I didn't like with, you know, we've been over the animation already, so we'll skip past that. It seems like there was no plot point worth mentioning in this show that wasn't worth mentioning another five times in excruciating detail, Mm. sometimes to the same person who'd already heard it who reacted like it was brand new Koshi. (laughs) Like the number of times he learned what the flickering flame was and every single time he's like, what? And you're like, you went to the library about this dude. Yes. Yes. Hello. That whole episode with exposition. I was up to my ears in exposition. I swear he must've learned what the flickering comet is three times by now. Like what is going on with this? And like, sometimes it's like, oh, characters that don't know about it are learning it. And for whatever reason, we've chosen to do that on screen rather than just assuming they got the digest version. But 
No, they did. They play out the whole thing every time. <laughs> I hated it. Yeah. Tons of repetitive information dumping. And because, you know, because we have these disparate viewpoints, you know, there's interesting stories to be told, but it all comes down to the s different people learning the same information over and over and over, but never enough of it to really make it clear of what it is or why it's important. Right. And actually at the same time, like the sort of the, the flip side of this coin, which is also not a good side of the coin, is that important, and I would say seemingly foundational concepts, like what a guardian deity is and how warding stones yes! work, are never explained. Never mentioned! Or they have so few lines of dialogue, you have no idea how it works. And it's like, those, you could have spent a little more time on like the ways the world currently works and less time on this speculative future thing about the comet five times. Mm. Actually, to to jump off of that, I was reading an article that someone else was reviewing this uh, towards the later stages of the show, uh, just to compare their notes with my own and see if there was something that I was missing. And apparently, the show, the way they decided to adapt the story relies extremely heavily on inference from circumstance and from language being used that of course to someone who doesn't speak Japanese or have much knowledge of the original story would make no sense whatsoever it would be like trying to I'm trying to think of an example of this it would be like trying to make an adaptation of Lord of the Rings but leaving out everything about Sauron and how the ring works and just assuming that people under that people in the world understand it it is infuriating because it sounds like such an interesting story and an interesting world but we're given so little direct information so little so few explanations for everything that it just makes me feel like am i stupid am i not <laughs> did i miss an important thing am i just not capable of following this did i like get bored and check out halfway through and it's like no you didn't you the show just didn't explain it to you yeah, or yeah. other times like for instance the tree folk we've mentioned there's these these sort of tree folk that are around what do you guys think does tree folk medicine work on humans or does it not work on humans? And also oh does it matter gosh. because at no Don't point get me did anyone ever get this. any. <laughs> yes. How many times do you need that medicine, girlfriend? It, uh, yeah, that, this sequence came up for me. They just like keep asking the tree folk for medicine. And it's like, I thought the whole shtick was that early on we learned that the reason Toko went into the woods was to get medicine for her adoptive mother. And... The mother's like, you know that stuff doesn't work on us, right? Like, why did you do that? And I don't know if that was just her saying, like, I don't know if that was translated poorly. And it was really like, I really like, hey, wonder about that as well. Like, yeah. was, it, was it, they can't produce medicine that will fix my eyes specifically? Because it was certainly translated as tree folk medicine doesn't work on humans. You right. Idiot. And she's like, guess I'll spend the rest of the show trying to get tree folk medicine then. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Like, no, Why? <laughs> Yeah, that, oh gosh. Yeah, that was bizarre and ridiculous. I think it was translated poorly, and I think pulling from what Dan said, I'm really thinking that the translation was, was going to struggle no matter what. We as English speakers, was going, we were going to struggle. Uh, I think this feeds into where I'm about to go next, which is I couldn't keep track language-wise of when things were parallel and when 
concepts were different. Like the whole sequence where Koshi goes and finds like this group of tree folk who are a rejected set. They like live in this ancient tree in the middle of the factory district. And they tell him the backstory of the world and like, guys, literally none of it made sense. Like I, I watched that <laughs> twice because it was my episode and I was just like, so the world died. They keep flipping between gods and divine clans. And I couldn't tell if like there were ancient gods once upon a time and the divine clans are descendants of them or if every like that's just one term and they're the same gods that like stole the flame from the beasts and then gave it back because it was too hot to handle and now everybody combusts like I just lost track of the plot completely at that point because terminology would be used and I wasn't sure if it was synonymous to other terms I had heard before there's too much repetition and then on top of that language switching whether it was subtitle problem or the way they were using the language, it was not consistent. And yeah, definitely. it really confused the stuffing out of me as to the overall conflict. And I still don't understand if the flickering flame is just, it's one of those things where like, because society has regressed so far back, nobody realizes this is actually just a piece of space junk thruster that's still... I don't has a flame in it and somehow that flame feeds the gods or if this is like a sentient propeller that is from ancient people that feeds the god like I have no clue what I've, it is I've got a pretty good idea but that's only because of the preview scenes we see for season two yeah that's true they do have some of that at the end there but they're yeah they're like oh we're worried about the flickering flame also known as the millennial comet because we right. have a real like silver beryllium moon crystal situation here with right. like, this thing and like okay so it's gonna come back and it's gonna probably judge us or not because the, the lady goddess is pleading with it using muku paper somehow to please not destroy everyone but also when it gets here we're gonna take the burden off of her by replacing her with it I was like, what is going on? But also, one of the fire hunters that catches it will become or will become the lord of the fire hunters and is oh, then yeah, meant too. to plead with the flickering flame. There's that legend running around that the lord of the fire hunters must take over speaking to the flame in order to make sure it doesn't destroy all of humanity. Which right, I like, never got to around to mentioning, but like the title of the show is actually the Lord of the Fire Hunters. Hikari no O. Yeah, oh like King, so Yeah, like weirdly enough it was translated as Fire Hunter in English, but like I've also seen it translated as Lord of the Fire Hunter. Which at least would have clarified things from the outset. I mean, to the best of my understanding, the the Millennial Comet refers to the craft of the spaceship or station or whatever it is itself. By the way, and, super ultra, ultra ugly picture of that thing. I wish hmm. they would stop showing it. Yeah. And then the flickering flame refers to some kind of, I think, artificial being inside, which is supposed to be the other goddess, because there's two primary goddesses. And, oh, the, right. and the idea is that the um, that these other gods, deities, divine clans, whatever they are, whether they're, you know, just humans who still have access to ancient technology or if they're actual like, spirits, I don't know. But that they have lost faith in their, you know, in the in the leader of their clans, in the goddess herself. She's too weak to 
continue keeping up the wards that protect the villages. And so they want to basically take her out, let her, you know, retire her so that she can recover and then stick the flickering flame, the this new being in her place to act as the power source for all of this magic, I guess. That's my that's what I was able to piece together after rewatching several parts over and over again. And even that is just like, I could be completely wrong on that. It's very difficult to understand because as Sue said, the language used for different characters often again relies heavily on inference and an understanding of who they were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. And Normally, I really like the idea that, you know, different people from different parts of society may have different words or names for things, like whether, you know, the common people might call the divine clans gods because that's how they see them. But people who are in the know are like, oh, no, these are just, you know, mages or exceptionally powerful people. So we just call them the divine clans because they're blessed. And normally that would be fine. But you need to have an interaction between those two worlds way sooner uh, or at least way more explicitly so that you can give the audience a reason to understand or a way to understand what you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Long story short, explain yourself better, show. Definitely. What else was there? Oh, you know what? I really felt like as, as interesting as the core concept of the setting is, right? Like people will combust in the presence of flame. I don't really feel like it had, I don't know, the needed impact or like the the effect you'd expect. Like... So everyone can die from fire if there's any fire, right? Why do all the people in the villages live in wooden houses with thatched roofs? Like, why? Like they live next to a bunch. They live next to basically a quarry. Maybe make it out of rocks. Also, it seems like not having fire means you can't do a lot of technology stuff. But then the fire fiend blood is effectively a replacement in every niche that it would matter in. So, like, I don't know. I feel like it didn't have as much impact as you'd expect. It's just there's a possibility that people will will burn in flame, but also it just doesn't come up that much. I think to, I'm just going to sum it up by stealing like an amazing phrase, Scott, you came up with, and it's just, it's always applicable. Like there's just enough detail that nothing (laughs) makes sense. Because to me, like I was thinking about it at one point and I was like, okay, you have these armored trains, so you're clearly capable of making steel, right? And then like guns that can, um, you guys have to help me like cannon like guns uh you're you're capable of these kinds of things so is it just that and then they have the sequence in the capital where they have like yacht day like rich people day yeah. and it's just such this like horrific scene of opulence while the rest of the countryside is you know basically living in squalor and so i wondered to myself like is the idea that things like metal because the factories are only in big places like the capital is metal you know only produced in places like this and then only used for trains that then travel around to these villages like do we not distribute metal to the rest of the people and there's also that confusing idea that yoishi or something the the rich guy that adopts koshi and oh, his yeah. sister he's like the gods basically keep us in squalor because every once in a while they'll just like send a lightning storm and natural fire will happen when it hits our thatched roofs and it will just burn and kill 
like tons of the population. They just randomly will cull the population and not use their amazing mage magic to make rainfall and save us, right? So I couldn't totally tell, but it almost seemed like the capital, which worships the divine clans, is sort of held almost, you know, in under siege by them. They're the only ones capable of producing the materials that wouldn't burn and they don't distribute them to the outside populace is how I understood it. But again, like so much inference, so much I have to stretch, so much I have to rewatch. And yeah, like I definitely like agree with, I agree with that through a lot of the show, but then when they go to like the, the village they end up at after the train is destroyed, like that Akira is from, they're like, Oh, we, we employ Akira here to do sort of extra fire hunting because we need extra fiend blood because we have like a metallurgical operation in this town. And I was like, oh, so they can make metal too. Like, so it turns out like metal could be made anywhere if you have the means. Like granted, the capital has like f factories. Like they make a lot more metal. Like I'm sure that village isn't going to build a train. So I think in large part that's true. But yeah, it, never, it seemed like a lot of the details did undermine some of the other details. We get a, and we also get a lot of these broad strokes explained to us, but it they talk a big game about all of these like, oh, there are these factory workers and like they are, you know, they're being run ragged and many of them are turning to like this drug that they keep uh, talking about. And, you know, they're in these really difficult conditions, but, you know, everyone's working to, you know, make the capital prosperous. So they're, you know, I won't say brainwashed, but they're sort of buying into the idea that, you know, we work hard to keep this place going. Um, and that sort of helps, you know, between that and the drugs helps kind of keep dissent from getting from getting too far spread. But I don't think we ever see a scene of people working at the factories or coming and going from the factories or anything about the factories themselves other than really long shots of the area. So... We Dan, there are so few people working in those factories <laughs> that we can fire a lightning cannon into the sky and make it turn purple and no one will notice Nobody notices anything. Yeah, thank God they were blowing the horn. That way it's so loud no one will notice the explosion in the purple sky. Like, what are you talking about? Get out of here. <laughs> didn't yeah, even, like, dr didn't even like drag it out into the woods just onto a hill overlooking everything in the city. Also, what is the deal with the, the adoptive dad guy. I don't mean like his, his like dealings and what he's up to. I mean the part where this, I don't know if you guys had the same translation, but they were like, ah, yes, his fake meat factory. The what? I'm like, <laughs> what is that? What does that possibly mean? Like the one time we see his factory, it's like, it's just a warehouse with a, like a bunch of stuff in it. Like, what does he do? Because fake, fake meat factory, I really keyed in on that. I was like, and you know what? His face with that little red bow tie is absolutely the face of a guy who sells fake meat. <laughs> like, that's okay. another thing. Like, I like the, the I want to say going back to some positives really briefly is like, I like the dynamic within his, you know, terrible family. Like, the <laughs> daughter true. is genuinely a good person, you know, sheltered by, you know, being wealthy and all of this, but actually, like, tries to help folks, tries to understand the world a little bit better, especially as she sort of comes to know Koshi and his, uh, you know, sort of quest for knowledge. But, like, her dad obviously is, like, he talks about how this is all to, like, protect the people because the Divine Clans don't care about us and the spiders are willing to just burn everything down in order to get their ways. So we have to be, like, you know, humans have to develop their own like way of defending themselves that was was the pitch 
but it's obviously right. feels a lot more sinister than that. And then you have his wife who may or may not also be a member of the divine clans. That's the like implication that I keep feeling like I'm getting that. She oh, is... that's interesting. His I wife just thought was she just was mean. like, yeah, yeah she... I just thought she was like angry wine mom. Like I was like, Oh, she's that too but i feel like that's part of it that she's like that her like kind of aloofness and feeling like she's above it all also her weird like just kind of general affect of being so detached from reality could be like not just due to like the drug that she's supposedly taking but also that she may be a member of these you know these divine clans and that was my thinking. He's like, okay, so he managed to marry himself into this position of power, but she's like divorced from this group. So maybe that has something to do with it, or maybe she's just really bad at keeping it a secret that this that is would what be she a is. Really interesting twist that Kira is actually like the divine goddess's replacement body. Cause like I think they mentioned towards the end, I might be totally misinterpreting this like they need a replacement vessel body yeah, yeah vessel for tayura hime and i mean if, honestly if, they, if that doesn't if end she, up being quote the fire hunter lord end quote i'm gonna be surprised yeah that's what i originally thought i was like obviously they're gonna like the fire hunter the lord of the fire hunters is supposed to like negotiate but then also become the new vessel like that didn't seem right based on other information we've gotten before so it would be a really interesting twist if it's like this you know, fusion of a divine clan plus a normal human would give you, like, the next divine goddess. Plus, Kira, like, features pretty prominently in the ending, so... Yeah. Well, and of course, and I think we're sort of moving up to this, um, there is the fact the show got cut short. Yes, yeah. Right? Like, it was, you know, originally pitched as 13 episodes. It stopped at 10. They're now saying they're going to have a second season. We'll see. <laughs> and all of a sudden, a lot of characters that had not been developed, like Kira, and like many of the others, suddenly got all of this development in like the last 10 minutes. Oh yeah. my Making goodness. Making extra head spinning. Like it's 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 a terrible ending to a show I was already, you know, not enjoying that much by the end. For sure. Yeah, I agree. Like at one point, I, I just started laughing, honestly. I don't know if you guys have that same translated line. Like there's this shot that like, it's panning upward into the sky. Toko is running forward with the sickle like after she's she's gone you know super saiyan and killed this this fire fiend and like the narrator is just like toko is almost is at the point of no return and i was like so I am i that. narrator like what is so am i the point of no return from what yeah right, like, <laughs> like there was an impl like when she took up the she took up the sickle once before and it was like okay there's an implication that there's more going on with her but i thought that was just more of a this is an act of desperation yeah, it was 100% an act of desperation where she just like accidentally hit the bear with it or whatever. Not accidentally, but. In, yeah, like, in, like you you sure? said, in like desperation, her eyes managed go to. Cat's eye and like. Yeah, now she's like a crazy possessed demon that destroys fiends on sight. Like, right. right. And I this is supposed to, to be that... something that was built up or like we were supposed to have seen coming. I don't know. I almost thought it was because they gave the, that whole backstory of Tayura Hime's sister, Tokohana Hime, who supposedly birthed the scythe from her body to allow fire hunters to defend, like, humanity to defend itself. I was like, and then they keep talking about, well, you know, talking with dancing about inference, that fire hunters in many ways aren't made, they're generational like i this sickle was passed to me this dog was passed to me so i was getting the sense that like 
they don't realize it until the sickle and the dog have been passed to them. It's it's kind of like a curse. Like, that's it. You've touched the sickle. You're one of us now. You're transforming. And this is it. Like, your transformation is complete. You can now wield the sickle. Kanata is probably going to come back to her. And that, like, you're a fire hunter now, honey. <laughs> like, that that's would it. be really interesting. Because, like, it seemed like, you know, they were like, oh, fire hunters and dogs are trained in the capital. Yeah. But maybe that's just something the villagers have heard in the outskirts and this this other interpretation is true. Yeah. It I might can... be. It's just that maybe they're not like they don't get to select that. It's like surprise, you're one now. Go train at the Capitol. It's like a it's like a Jedi thing. It's like, oh, turns out you were force sensitive this whole time. We're gonna abduct your child and induct them into our weird, creepy space right. wizard cult. It's kind of the same like you have no other choice now. Right, you've touched an implement of a goddess, so you are now one of us. But yeah, I don't know. The The show starts dumping all of that stuff. We haven't even gotten to the point with Koshi's feral child sister. Like, Oh my goodness. That just like, oh my gosh. That what was is even, what is even happening? amazing. Like she just jumps around like some sort of wild monkey. I got um, like Dune vibes from that. I don't know if you guys ever read Dune, but at the end of it, like... Paul's sister, this like two oh, yeah. or three year old or something that's just been totally submerged and inundated with spice, just starts like jumping around and doing stuff. And I was like, what the sweet crispy hell is going on? Yeah, right. And like, that was what it was. She's just hopping around, like pulls Toko out of the water and is like, I gotta go. <laughs> Why is <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Talk about the worst, the silliest coincidence of the whole show. I'm like, get out of here with this. You shut your you mouth. Just happened I to be so just hard. chilling out here. It was one of those moments that, like, the terrible animation totally, like, sold it, too. She was like, and away! <laughs> like, hops <laughs> twice down the canal. <laughs> right, and she's just, just gone. Solid. Just like, her solid. whole thing was like, ah, there is there is danger. I must face it. It was like, the danger is literally right there because two seconds later, a fire fiend shows up. Yeah, nope, nope. It's like, where did you If go? you had stayed around for literally a moment longer, you would have been in the middle of all of this. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, and, and the, the thing is, is that, like, we established at the beginning that Koshi's sister has some kind of a disease. We thought that it was, you know, some sort of thing due to their proximity to the, uh, to the factories the and the combination. Fetal with, contamination. Yeah, they tell yeah, fetal like... contamination where it's like, okay, maybe it's a genetic thing or maybe it's something with the fact that her their parents, I think, I guess her mom uh, was taking that drug that was mentioned earlier. And maybe that that caused some issues when she, you know, when she was born, you know, issues in utero. I don't know. It, it was left vague enough that it could have been anything. And that was fine. But then again, they do this this sudden change where it's just like oh nope she's like possessed by something i guess so and like also the adoptive dad is like uh why did this have to happen now like okay well you know what's going on too like but you're not going to explain it to anyone because like season two season two like it 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 really felt like there was a lot of stuff that was meant to subvert expectations or something but like when your expectations are already unsure and scrambled yeah exactly then how can you subvert those how can you surprise people when they have no reason to expect what's coming next anyway yeah what a mess feral child was not on my bingo card no 
Heck yeah, no, certainly no. not. You may have two of them now. I don't know what's up yeah, with Toki. Not even like, oh, she's like, whatever she has, it's the same as what's happening to the children of the forest. I was like, okay, that at least would have been based on something that exists within the world that I was aware of. It would have still felt like it came out of nowhere, but at least it's its own thing rather than now there are like feral children as well that can like jump around like crazy and apparently has a real mat on against uh, <laughs> against Kira's mother. That was another reason I was thinking that maybe there's some connection between her and the divine clans. Maybe this is that's like, true. She has something to do with with the feral nature. Uh, it seems yeah. like it might also be the reason why she doesn't want any dogs in the house. Right, the dogs are probably trained to sense the vile intentions she has, or that she is, you know, a divine clan member. Who knows? Yeah. Either way, this this show is, I think, the very definition of a hot mess. Oh is, yeah. Like, certainly I can't recommend it. Like, if it's if anything we said sounds interesting, maybe you find a translation of the, the source material. Yeah, I feel like you'd be much better off looking for the original novel or the original uh, work in one way or another than trying to no, piece don't watch this. this nonsense together. No one should watch this. Yeah. It's, it's deeply disappointing, too. Like, like after... Maybe watch the opening theme. That, that part's <laughs> cool. That's about it. Yeah. It's deeply disappointing for me because I was like, oh, man, there's not really a lot in this season that I'm super jazzed about. You know, like Buddy Daddies is cool, but I don't know if it's necessarily deep enough for us to make an entire uh, an entire review about. And then we picked this because it's like, OK, this is unique. It's interesting. It's visually distinct. The world is obviously very clearly thought out. There were so many things going for it at that very beginning it has the pedigree it has the direction it has all of this that should have turned this thing into if not a masterpiece at least an interesting enough uh show to give us plenty to chew on and plenty to enjoy even if it didn't necessarily live up to its promise but not only did it fail to live up to its promise it actively made itself worse at every single step and i i don't know what happened i don't know if it's some kind of there were some issues within the studio. If there were outsourcing problems, it was another victim of the pandemic and things changed. Or if this was just the decision that they decided to go with the way that they decided to write this story and it just failed to, tr to come across the way that they intended. Well, Whatever that, the but case. It's also like there's clearly, even if, even if the animation style wasn't, was intentional, which it probably was at the beginning, the obvious lack of money, like particularly by the end, like uh, that's clearly an effect here. Yeah. It's e e I guess e either money or, yeah, you're right. Like maybe all the workers got sick and they couldn't animate it. It's, it's one of those two things, but nobody wants to make animation that looks like this. The cartoon in my head is that like some, you know, sleazy businessman <laughs> paid a bunch of money, got Mamoru Oshii, brought him into a room, locked him in, and then gave him this like Kaiba, Seto Kaiba looking briefcase and then he opens it and there's like one yen in there <laughs> and they were like so i need you to agree to take this job before we show you how much money there is right and then he's like chained to this case that has a single yen like i've never heard of studio like w-o-w -W, and you know not that i'm on the up and up with all the studios but i pay enough attention that this just seemed like a Shirobako moment where it was like, ship this to some tiny studio way over there that, you know, is able to crank something. Make stretch, make that one yen work. <laughs> stretch, stretch that single yen out. 
So yeah, not recommended. Very no. disappointing. Sheesh. Sheesh indeed. Let's hope for better next time. All right. Sounds good. Catch you guys next season. See you then. See ya. Hamaoto ni me o samasu yoake ni wa mata hitoku tori. Nukashiki.